Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother, Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we're going over the Come Follow Me lesson for June 1st through 7th, 2020. This is covering Alma, chapters 5 through 7. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Hooray! We're so excited. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 29 minutes, 19 seconds. So that's not bad. That's doable. We're back to about a half hour. A little over four minutes a day. Yep. All right. Love it. Very, very doable. So where we left off last week, Alma realized after a few years of being both the chief judge and the high priest that it's really hard to do both jobs at the same time. Yep. And so he turned over the chief judge role to Nephiha, and now he's going to focus his time strictly on the church as the high priest. Now, one interesting thought, why was that the choice? You know, why not assign high priest to somebody else and stay in the chief judgeship? Yeah, that's a good question. I tend to think that Alma understood it's more important, it's more lasting to help people to find Jesus Christ and to have him change them rather than being a legal executor to enforce law. There's a great quote that is in the old Gospel Doctrine Manual, but it was also quoted by Elder Bednar in this last conference in his talk, Let This House Be Built Unto My Name. It's one of my favorite quotes from President Ezra Taft Benson. This is from the October 1985 General Conference. Quote, the Lord works from the inside out. The world works from the outside in. The world would take people out of slums. Christ takes the slums out of people and then they take themselves out of the slums. The world would mold men by changing their environment. Christ changes men who then change their environment. The world would shape human behavior, but Christ can change human nature, end quote. I love that. Yeah. And it seems clear to me that Alma understood that too. Yeah. He knew that if he wanted to fix society, the best thing that he could do was to focus his efforts on the church. Certainly try the virtue of the Word of God. The other thing exactly. that's interesting about that as you were talking, I was thinking having a good society, this also has eternal consequences. So you may pass a law or a bill or do something, and that can help society, and that's great. But working on sharing the gospel and helping bring Christ into people's lives, that has eternal consequences. That's a really good point. I mean, as good as laws are to have, mortal societies come and mortal societies go. Yep. But we are eternal beings. Absolutely. So let's go on to Alma chapter 5. Interesting side note before we start, there is a little bit of text before the chapter. It says, The words which Alma the high priest, according to the holy order of God, delivered to the people in their cities and villages throughout the land. That's translated from the plates. That's not something that we added or anything. You know, that was translated from the plates. We start with 
the first couple of verses, Alma decides that he's going to start his preaching in Zarahemla. That's a very good place to start. It is. Well, and it's the place he's most familiar with. That's where he is. Yeah. And he can see all the problems that are going on. So, you know, we'll, we'll start here. So he starts out with his talk. Now, this talk, you definitely should read the whole thing. We're going to read a lot of this because it's really good. But this is essentially a state conference talk to the community, you know, and it's really outstanding. He talks in the first part about it, announcing his own authority by the hand of his father, Alma, and recounts the history of Alma's people and King Noah and their deliverance and so on and so forth. It's worth pointing out how important this whole, like the whole first 13 verses, his first message to them is about remembering how important it is to remember what God has done for us. I mentioned this in a past episode, but it's one of the great words to do a study search with. If you pick a word and then just search for how it's used throughout, say, the Book of Mormon, the word remember is a fascinating one. You see it time and time again when people need to be changed. It's amazing what happens to us when we stop remembering what God has done for our lives. It's amazing what we can choose to believe if we stop remembering and how easy it is to behave in certain ways if we stop remembering. So this really is foundational. And I love that he starts out with that message. Well, and certainly President Kimball, as we mentioned in a previous episode, quote, President Kimball would agree with you as he suggested that if you were to look up the most important word in the English language, that it might be remember. Yeah. And it starts off that way, as you mentioned, verse 6. And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, you that belong to this church, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Yea, and have you sufficiently retained in remembrance his mercy and long suffering toward them? And moreover, have ye sufficiently retained in remembrance that he has delivered their souls from hell? Again, we have retained in remembrance three times in that verse. Yeah, which seems to indicate that this is something that they know already mm-hmm. or should know. That's right. And he's specifically using the phrase retained in remembrance. That means you know it and perhaps you've even remembered it, but you need to keep it fresh in your memory. Going on, behold, he changed their hearts. Yea, he awakened them out of a deep sleep and they awoke unto God. Behold, they were in the midst of darkness. Nevertheless, their souls were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. Yea, they were encircled about by the bands of death and the chains of hell, and an everlasting destruction did await them. And now I ask of you, my brethren, were they destroyed? Behold, I say unto you, nay, they were not. And again, I ask, were the bands of death broken, and the chains of hell which encircled them about, were they loosed? I say unto you, yea, they were loosed, and their souls did expand, and they did sing redeeming love. And I say unto you, that they are saved. I wonder, as I think about people, and I'm going to apply this to myself too, but if you know people that have left the church and and you know them, you have a relationship with them and you've seen them when they are even bearing testimony. I certainly know my share of people that have borne strong testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel and shared spiritual experiences they've had that have brought them to tears. 
And then later in life, they've denied all of those things in how they've acted and what they've done. And I think I really do see that the first step to that is choosing to forget or retain in remembrance those things that the Lord has done for you. They have to deny those things if they're going to act. And I extend that to myself too. When I give in to sin or when I struggle with feelings of anxiety or fear, in order to really embrace those feelings, I kind of have to consciously forget what the Lord's already done for me. And that's why this is so important. Remember what the Lord has done. There's another phrase in verse 7 that we're going to come back to a few times right at the beginning. Behold, he changed their hearts. Christ changes people. He changes their nature. He helps them to become like he is, like the Father is. Yeah, amen. We're going to see a lot more of that later in this lesson. Going on, verse 10, And now I ask of you, on what conditions are they saved? Yea, what grounds had they to hope for salvation? What is the cause of their being loosed from the bands of death? Yea, and also the chains of hell. Behold, I can tell you. Did not my father Alma believe in the words which were delivered by the mouth of Abinadi? And was he not a holy prophet? Did he not speak the words of God and my father Alma believed them? And according to his faith, there was a mighty change wrought in his heart. There it is again. Behold, I say unto you that this is all true. And behold, he preached the word unto your fathers, and a mighty change was also wrought in their hearts. And they humbled themselves and put their trust in the true and living God. And behold, they were faithful until the end. Therefore, they were saved. There's a quote that I pulled out of the Institute Manual from President Marion G. Romney. This is from October 1975, General Conference. He says, Quote, the verb convert means to turn from one belief or course to another, and conversion is a spiritual and moral change attending a change of belief with conviction. As used in the scriptures, converted generally implies not merely mental acceptance of Jesus and his teachings, but also a motivating faith in him and in his gospel. A faith which works a transformation, an actual change in one's understanding of life's meaning and in one's allegiance to God, in interest, in thought, and in conduct. While conversion may be accomplished in stages, one is not really converted in the full sense of the term unless he is, at heart, a new person. End quote. There's that concept of a change of heart or change of your nature. Yeah, fantastic. So true. Going on, verse 14, And now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Do ye exercise faith in the redemption of him who created you? Do you look forward with an eye of faith and view this mortal body raised in immortality and this corruption raised in incorruption? 
to stand before God to be judged according to the deeds which have been done in the mortal body? I say unto you, Can you imagine to yourselves that ye hear the voice of the Lord saying unto you in that day, Come unto me, ye blessed. For behold, your works have been the works of righteousness upon the face of the earth. Or do ye imagine to yourselves that ye can lie unto the Lord in that day and say, Lord, our works have been righteous works upon the face of the earth, and that he will save you? Or otherwise can ye imagine yourselves brought before the tribunal of God with your souls filled with guilt and remorse, having a remembrance of all your guilt, yea, a perfect remembrance of all your wickedness, yea, a remembrance that ye have set at defiance the commandments of God. I say unto you, can ye look up to God at that day with a pure heart and clean hands? I say unto you, can you look up having the image of God engraven upon your countenances? Now in verse 14 and verse 19, there's a phrase that we should be familiar with, especially if we've read through the Book of Mormon before. Have ye received his image in your countenance? And at the end, having the, the image of God engraven upon your countenances. Yeah. So I looked up countenance in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, and there was an interesting segment of the definition, quote, literally the contents of a body the outline and extent which constitutes the whole figure or external appearance, appropriately the human face, the whole form of the face or system of features, visage. So to me, if you were to ask for a simple definition of countenance, I would suggest think about someone you know well, maybe your parent or a brother or sister or a best friend. When you look at them, how can you tell it's them as opposed to someone else? What about them immediately identifies to your brain? Oh, that's Joe. Then think about it in the context of God. What Alma is saying here is that we should be doing so much to align our will with God and to become like he is so that others, when they look upon us, should see God a recognizable manifestation of God. Maybe as we're talking about this and, and reading this, you're thinking of somebody in your life who has that, somebody who you have seen or do see the image of God through that person. Another interesting exercise might be to think of the opposite of that. Do you see in the countenance of someone a lack of, of God's image? Do you see in someone a dark countenance? Have you felt that when you're not even sure why you feel so uncomfortable around this person? All you can do is sense that there's something about their countenance that is uncomfortable, unfamiliar, unsafe, maybe even. So it's fascinating how powerful our countenances are. And when we get into third Nephi, we will see exactly what a perfect countenance looks like. So mm. that will be the ultimate image. But what a great phrase. What a great set of questions to ask. You know, in 14, have you been spiritually born of God? Have you received his image in your countenances? And have you experienced a mighty change in heart? 
I assume these are all connected. Maybe it's by being spiritually born of God that you do have that change of heart and receive his image in your countenance or whatever, but they're interconnected. But ask that to yourself. Even ask it prayerfully. God, have I been spiritually born of you? Have I received your image in my countenance? Have I received a mighty change of heart? If not, what lack I yet? What can I do to increase those very features? There's a story that I remember from General Conference. It's October 2005. This was a talk given by James E. Faust. But I also found this quote in the Institute Manual. It tells a story about the importance of manifesting God's countenance within you. Quote, I recently recalled a historic meeting in Jerusalem about 17 years ago. It was regarding the lease for the land on which the Brigham Young University's Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies was later built. Before this lease could be signed, President Ezra Taft Benson and Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, then president of Brigham Young University, agreed with the Israeli government on behalf of the church and the university not to proselyte in Israel. You might wonder why we agreed not to proselyte. We were required to do so in order to get the building permit to build that magnificent building, which stands in the historic city of Jerusalem. To our knowledge, the church and BYU have scrupulously and honorably kept that non-proselyting commitment. After the lease had been signed, one of our friends insightfully remarked, Oh, we know that you are not going to proselyte, but what are you going to do about the light that is in their eyes? He was referring to our students who were studying in Israel, end quote. <laughs> in other words, you can't proselyte, uh... but you can't hide the countenance of God. I wonder if this has happened to any of you. My wife shared a story about the office and the place that she works was in a different state, and her boss was talking to her about somebody in that office, I think in Human Resources, and said, I think he goes to your church. He's like you. You know, <laughs> what an interesting thing to say. <laughs> when you would hope that it would be a good thing. Yeah, certainly. well, uh, yes, but yeah. Hopefully we stand up for that. Hopefully we are good examples of the Savior. Now, Alma is talking to a people that he knows are having some serious problems. If you'll recall, we have a new movement among Zarahemla, the, the followers of Nehor, very worldly religion. And so while some of his words may seem pretty sharp and guilt-driven, it's kind of necessary. Well— and to say all of these things may not apply to you as you're asking these questions, but still ask yourself these questions. Imagine that you are there before the judgment seat. Verse 22, and now I ask of you, my brethren, how will any of you feel if ye shall stand before the bar of God, having your garments stained with blood and all manner of filthiness? Behold, what will these things testify against you? Behold, will they not testify that ye are murderers? Yea, and also that ye are guilty of all manner of wickedness? Behold, my brethren, do ye suppose that such an one can have a place to sit down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob? 
and also all the holy prophets whose garments are cleansed and spotless, pure and white? I say unto you, Nay, except ye make our Creator a liar from the beginning, or suppose that he is a liar from the beginning, ye cannot suppose that such can have place in the kingdom of heaven. But they shall be cast out, for they are the children of the kingdom of the devil. So there certainly were some harsh words, and even in 23, that notion will not testify that you're murderers. Now, before we dismiss that as saying, well, I'm, I'm not a murderer. I haven't killed anybody. Right. Alma, he may mean that completely literally, but Alma also uses that term for the way he was in the past. When we get to Alma 36, now I know that's in the future, but in Alma 36, he's reflecting on the person he used to be before his conversion. And he says, yea, and I had murdered many of his children, speaking of God's children, or rather led them away unto destruction. So that's an interesting question. What it says, will it not testify that ye are murderers? What about that definition? Have we murdered any of God's children by leading them away unto destruction. This is a commandment to the people of the church. So are you people of the church? Has your example been such that you have purposefully led people away from God? And that's a good question to ask. Maybe we haven't always kept our standards when we should. Maybe we have spoken evil of the Lord's leaders, of those that he's called to serve, those that have been in positions of teachers or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we can murmur and backtalk, and maybe we don't think about the impact that that can have to lead someone who's maybe already struggling away. So something Mm -hmm. to think about. Yep. Going on. And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, If ye have experienced a change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? Have ye walked keeping yourselves blameless before God? Could ye say if ye were called to die at this time within yourselves that ye have been sufficiently humble, that your garments have been cleansed and made white through the blood of Christ who will come to redeem his people from their sins? Wow. Talk about taking inventory. That's one of my favorite questions to ask, speaking of inventory. If you felt this before, can you feel so now? And if not, why not? Well, and what a phrase, sufficiently humble. (laughs) Oh, I am definitely sufficiently humble. I'm about as the most sufficiently humble that there (laughs) is. Couldn't even be more sufficiently humble than I am. I don't remember who said this, but there's a a line that says something to the effect of humility is a strange thing. Once you've discovered that you have it, you've lost it. (laughs) So why was that interesting to you, John, that expression? Well, again, it's the notion of could we ever be sufficiently humble? Even if we could be as humble as we possibly could, would it be enough? It's kind of the whole element of Can we gain salvation or exaltation on our own merits? And the answer to the question is no. And so we should be constantly doing the best that we can to be humble. In other words, 
I don't think that we could ever be sufficiently humble, but we can do the best we can. But isn't it interesting that this is part of the series of questions that he wants us to ask ourselves? And there's more questions. Mm-hmm. So verse 28, Behold, are ye stripped of pride? I say unto you, if ye are not, ye are not prepared to meet God. Behold, ye must prepare quickly, for the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand, and such an one hath not eternal life. Behold, I say, is there one among you who is not stripped of envy? I say unto you that such an one is not prepared, and I would that he should prepare quickly, for the hour is close at hand, and he knoweth not when the time shall come, for such an one is not found guiltless. Envy is an interesting sin to work with. There is a great quote that I pulled out of the Institute Manual from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. This is from General Conference, April 2002. He says, quote, It has been said that envy is the one sin to which no one readily confesses. But just how widespread that tendency can be is suggested in the old Danish proverb, If envy were a fever, all the world would be ill. As others seem to grow larger in our sight, we think we must, therefore, be smaller. So unfortunately, we occasionally act that way. How does this happen? Especially when we wish so much that it would not. I think one of the reasons is that every day we see allurements of one kind or another that tell us that what we have is not enough. Someone or something is forever telling us we need to be more handsome or more wealthy, more applauded or more admired than we see ourselves as being. We are told we haven't collected enough possessions or gone to enough fun places. We are bombarded with the message that on the world scale of things, we have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. But God does not work this way. I testify that no one of us is less treasured or cherished of God than another. I testify that he loves each of us, insecurities, anxieties, self-image, and all. He doesn't measure our talents or our looks. He doesn't measure our professions or our possessions. He cheers on every runner, calling out that the race is against sin, not against each other. I know that if we will be faithful, there is a perfectly tailored robe of righteousness ready and waiting for everyone. Robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. May we encourage each other in our effort to win that prize. End quote. What a happy world that would be. Wonderful perspective. Yeah. Gotta love Elder Holland. Yes. So going on back to Alma. And again, I say unto you, is there one among you that doth make a mock of his brother, or that heapeth upon him persecutions? Well, we talked about that last lesson. If you're persecuting someone, maybe not on the right side. Woe unto such an one, for he is not prepared, and the time is at hand that he must repent, or he cannot be saved. Yea, woe unto all ye workers of iniquity, repent! Repent, for the Lord God hath spoken it. You know, one of the things that's so great about that message, because maybe we're listening to it and we're like, oh, God, stop, you know, yelling at me. 
<laughs> but remember what we keep being taught is repentance is change. And that's the whole message here. We need a countenance change. We need a change of heart. We need even a, a change of birth. We need to be spiritually born of God. Repent means change. So stop being who you are. Okay, let's clarify that. Because we just had Elder Holland say, you know, how much the Lord cherishes each of us. But he wants us to be the best version of ourselves. So stop being content with who you are right now and change to become the better version of yourself. We all can do it. I believe it was Carl G. Mazur who was famous for saying, always be yourself, but always be your better self. Oh, yeah. What a great way to say it. Yeah. I mean, the Lord wants us to be us. But we're not good enough the way we are. There's so much more we can be. And we don't have to do it alone, for heaven's sakes. What Alma's trying to tell us is get Christ in you and let that change you. And let's remember, this is why we were here in the first place. Yes. It was because we wanted to become something better than yep. we were. Absolutely. You know, there's a great quote that's actually in the Come Follow Me manual. And I was glad to find this because... I've noticed lately that there have been several general authorities who have talked in general conference about their own standing and being concerned about how well they're doing. Sometimes we put our leaders, particularly the apostles and president of the church, on a pedestal and assume, well, okay, they're calling an election is made sure because they're an apostle or they're a prophet or whatever. But this quote from President M. Russell Ballard, this is from April 2017 general conference, says, quote, I need to regularly take time to ask myself, how am I doing? It's kind of like having a personal private interview with yourself. As a guide for me during this private personal review, I like to read and ponder the introspective words found in the fifth chapter of Alma, end quote. Yeah, good advice for all of us. There's a line that's attributed to Jay Golden Kimball about how, well, no great light came down from heaven and took away all of our faults. At least it never did for me. <laughs> I love that. It just makes helps us remember that everyone is trying. Everyone needs to ask themselves, how am I doing? Yeah. Do I have his image in my countenance? Have I been sufficiently humble? Well, and remembering, too, what can we do to make it easier on somebody else? You know, it's easy to criticize others, sometimes fun too, but <laughs> that's not Zion. We need to help each other. We need to be patient with each other and recognize that we're each working on our own thing. Absolutely. And we're all at different levels on that one thing too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what may be easy for some is still very difficult for another. Undoubtedly. So Alma goes on, verse 33, Behold, he sendeth an invitation unto all men. For the arms of mercy are extended towards them. And he saith, repent, and I will receive you. Quick aside here. While he is speaking to the church at this point, I think he very deliberately used the word all men. Members of the church or not, doesn't matter. All of us are children of God, and he is extending his arms of mercy to everyone. Yep. Yea, he saith, come unto me. And ye shall partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Yea, ye shall eat and drink of the bread and the waters of life freely. Yea, come unto me, and bring forth works of righteousness, and ye shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire. 
For behold, the time is at hand that whosoever bringeth forth not good fruit or whosoever doeth not the works of righteousness, the same have cause to wail and mourn. O ye workers of iniquity, ye that are puffed up in the vain things of the world, ye that have professed to have known the ways of righteousness, nevertheless have gone astray as sheep having no shepherd. Notwithstanding a shepherd hath called after you, and is still calling after you. But ye will not hearken unto his voice. Behold, I say unto you, that the good shepherd doth call you. Yea, and in his own name he doth call you, which is the name of Christ. And if ye will not hearken unto the voice of the good shepherd, to the name by which ye are called, behold, ye are not the sheep of the good shepherd. And now, if ye are not the sheep of the good shepherd, of what fold are ye? Behold, I say unto you that the devil is your shepherd, and ye are of his fold. And now, who can deny this? Behold, I say unto you, whosoever denieth this is a liar and a child of the devil. For I say unto you that whatsoever is good cometh from God, and whatsoever is evil cometh from the devil. Okay. So one could take that at the end and have someone who denies Christ and say, well, you're of the devil. I don't think what Alma's saying here is a guideline for us to judge and persecute other people. I think it's for us to self-examine. Exactly. What is this that I'm doing? Yeah. What if we profess that we're in the flock, but we don't respond to the voice of the master like we should if we were really in his flock? You know, when he calls us, not just one time, but in all things, do we hearken to his voice? So much of what's in here is all about, it's all pointed at church members. And I think we need to ask ourselves those questions. It's an interesting thing in verse 38, this idea of being called by his name. Christ attaches his name to his flock. The devil does not. The devil doesn't want you to know that you are in his flock. He wants you to think you're in a really great flock, but it's really his flock. We talked about this before, but these ideas of times when we do something that we consider virtuous, but it takes us away from God. So like Sariah was feeling feelings of empathy and desires for the welfare of her sons and or whatever she was going through, her worries... Even though, they, sure, it's good to worry about your kids, but those things took her away from God. Lehi, concerned about the situation his family was in, they were starving. Well, of course you would want to feel empathetic for that, but where did it take him? Took him away from God. Another great example in the New Testament. This one is so, the Lord points out how clear this is. In Matthew 16, and 21, it says, From this time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. So what's Peter's response in 22? Peter took him and began to rebuke him. He's rebuking the Savior, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Doesn't that seem virtuous? That Peter cares about the safety and well-being? I'll protect you. I'll stand up for you. But those feelings were not, even though they felt virtuous, they were not motivated by God, as Christ points out in 23. Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. 
for thou savorest not the things of God, but those that be of men. Don't think you're in my flock when you're feeling that way. Those feelings you feel like, Satan is disguising them to feel like virtue. Of course, caring for somebody else, wanting them not to be hurt. But it isn't virtue when it takes you away from God. So you need to make sure that you are truly called by the shepherd because he will make it clear what his call is and what his flock is. Satan will not attach his name to that flock. Mm -hmm. So skipping ahead a little bit, verse 45, we get an interesting insight as Elma takes a moment to talk about his testimony, how he knows these things to be true. Verse 45, and this is not all. Do ye not suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. And how do ye suppose that I know of their surety? Oh, I think I know. I think we covered this in a story. (laughs) Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, that wasn't what I was expecting. He saw an angel. He did. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true. For the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. And moreover, I say unto you that it has thus been revealed unto me that the words which have been spoken by our fathers are true. Even so, according to the spirit of prophecy which is in me, which is also by the manifestation of the Spirit of God, I say unto you that I know of myself that whatsoever I shall say unto you concerning that which is to come is true. And I say unto you that I know that Jesus Christ shall come, yea, the Son, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy and truth, And behold, it is he that cometh to take away the sins of the world, yea, the sins of every man who steadfastly believeth on his name. So why do you think he didn't mention the angel at all in here? That is interesting, isn't it? When we we read the story, certainly, of his conversion— he was going about to destroy the church, and an angel came— and told him to stop it. There's no mention of the angel here. Not at all. There are a couple of quotes that I pulled out of the Institute Manual, just short ones, but they address this very thing. From President Heber J. Grant in April 1924 General Conference, he says, quote, Many men say, if I could only see an angel, if I could only hear an angel proclaim something, that would cause me to be faithful all the days of my life. It had no effect upon these men, referring to Laman and Lemuel, who were not serving the Lord, and it would have no effect today, end quote. And to add to that from President Joseph Fielding Smith from Doctrines of Salvation, his book, quote, Christ declared that the manifestations we might have from a visitation of an angel, a tangible resurrected being, would not leave the impression which we would receive through a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. Personal visitations might become dim as time goes on, but this guidance of the Holy Ghost is renewed and continued 
day after day, year after year, if we live to be worthy of it, end quote. So there's the key. Of course, he's going to remember that experience. He tells his son about it later. It had a very powerful impact. But it seemed like that was the catalyst that moved him to have that personal change of heart that he's talking about, bringing Christ into his countenance and so forth. The other thing I really like about it is if Alma came to me and said, I know this is true because an angel, I might be thinking, well, gosh, I guess there's no way I could know that it's true of myself. Because I haven't seen an angel. Well, right. And he's focusing on what everybody else can do. Look, I fasted, I prayed, the Holy Ghost manifested. That same tool set is available to you. We all can access that, every one of us. The whole world is a a storyline of the Holy Spirit manifesting himself to people throughout the ages. And what a wonderful thing to get to be a part of. We all can be. You know, Alma's declaration of his testimony reminded me in some ways of a very famous testimony, or at least it was uh, particularly when I was going on my mission. April 1985 General Conference, we have a talk from Elder Bruce R. McConkie. It was his last General Conference talk called The Purifying Power of Gethsemane. And he uses a unique phrase in there, quote, In speaking of these wondrous things, I shall use my own words. Though you may think they are the words of Scripture, words spoken by (laughs) other apostles and prophets, true it is they were first proclaimed by others, but they are now mine. For the Holy Spirit of God has borne witness to me that they are true, and it is now as though the Lord had revealed them to me in the first instance. I have thereby heard his voice and know his word, end quote. <laughs> That's great. That's the way it is. Yeah. At the end of the day, this isn't Elder McConkie's words. These aren't Alma the Younger's words. These are God's words. Yeah. Well, and credit to the Spirit specifically is given in this section in verses 50 through 52, where he says, Thus saith the Spirit, And then he goes on to say what the Spirit's saying in verse 51. And also, the Spirit saith unto me. And again, I say unto you, the Spirit saith. Maybe we should pay attention. Mm. That's He gained his knowledge through the Spirit, and now he's specifically quoting what the Spirit of God is telling us to do. And the message is what we've been seeing, the message that the church in Zarahemla and we ourselves need. Repent, change, open up ourselves to God. Now is the time to repent. Otherwise, we can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And there are consequences coming up in verse 52 about what happens if we don't. So if you happen to notice that in the scriptures, boy, mark that. How exciting. This is what the Spirit's saying, and I'm going to tell you. Well, and also, we talked about this in previous episodes, but when someone bears their testimony like this and says, the Spirit says so on and so forth, It's not direct instruction that should be taken blindly. This isn't something where we should say, well, he's a prophet, so I guess we should listen to what he has to say. No, no, no. This is instruction given to him by the Spirit to you. And now you have the obligation to take those words and to take them to the Father through prayer and fasting 
so that the Holy Spirit can manifest to you directly that what this servant gave you was true, was God's word, was the words of the Spirit, and you need to pay attention to them. Yeah, but then it becomes what Elder McCockey was saying, then it becomes your words. It becomes exactly direct message from God to you, which is Now amazing. your testimony is independent of anyone else's. Yeah. And it's, regardless of what anyone says, you know that you have had a conversation with God and he has told you these things. Yeah, and then Period. we don't get to turn Any around story. and say, you know, oh, the prophet said this or that. No, then we've got a very direct line that said, you know what? God told me this through the mouth of his holy prophet, you know, or however you want to connect it. But when we take it to the Lord, that's what we get. That's what's so amazing about this gospel experience. And it's so important. Yes. All right. Going on to 53. And now, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, can you withstand these sayings? Yea, can ye lay aside these things and trample the Holy One under your feet? Yea, can ye be puffed up in the pride of your hearts? Yea, will ye still persist in the wearing of costly apparel and setting your hearts upon the vain things of the world, upon your riches? Yea, will ye persist in supposing that ye are better one than another? Yea, will ye persist in the persecution of your brethren who humble themselves and do walk after the holy order of God, wherewith they have been brought into this church, having been sanctified by his Holy Spirit, and they do bring forth works which are meet for repentance? Yea, and will ye persist in turning your backs upon the poor and the needy, and in withholding your substance from them? And finally, all ye that will persist in your wickedness, I say unto you that these are they who shall be hewn down and cast into the fire, except they speedily repent. Consequences. Yeah. From the Institute Manual, there's a quote from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. This is from October 2005 General Conference. He says, quote, In terms of preoccupation with self and a fixation on the physical, this is more than social insanity. It is spiritually destructive, and it accounts for much of the unhappiness in the modern world. And if adults are preoccupied with appearance, tucking and nipping and implanting and remodeling everything that can be remodeled, those pressures and anxieties will certainly seep through to children. At some point, the problem becomes what the Book of Mormon called vain imaginations. And in secular society, both vanity and imagination run wild. One would truly need a great and spacious makeup kit to compete <laughs> with beauty as portrayed in media all around us, end quote. Uh, it's a good thing that we as members of the church don't fall into those traps. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, wait. I'm, I don't know what I'm I was sorry, thinking. I can't support that phrase. No, that's actually, it, it felt uh, ridiculous just saying it. <laughs> no, we pay attention. This is for us. This yes, is for Alma us. is directing this to us, and Elder Holland was the directing that to us. That's from yeah. General Conference, right? He's speaking yeah. to members of the church. Yep. Tucking, nipping, implanting, and remodeling. Mm. Verse 57. And now I say unto you, all that are desirous to follow the voice of the good shepherd, come ye out from the wicked, and be ye separate, and touch not their unclean things. And behold, their names shall be blotted out, that the names of the wicked 
shall not be numbered among the names of the righteous, that the word of God may be fulfilled, which saith, The names of the wicked shall not be mingled with the names of my people. That phrase, be ye separate, that pulled out another quote from the Institute Manual. This is a great story from Elder David R. Stone. This was from April 2006 General Conference. Uh, David R. Stone is the member of the 70. He says, quote, Too many of the people of the world have come to resemble the Babylon of old by walking in their own ways and following a God whose image is in the likeness of the world. One of the greatest challenges we will face is to be able to live in that world, but somehow not be of that world. We have to create Zion in the midst of Babylon. My involvement with the building of the Manhattan Temple gave me the opportunity to be in the temple quite often prior to the dedication. It was wonderful to sit in the celestial room and be there in perfect silence without a single sound to be heard coming from the busy New York streets outside. How was it possible that the temple could be so reverently silent when the hustle and bustle of the metropolis was just a few yards away? The answer was in the construction of the temple. The temple was built within the walls of an existing building, and the inner walls of the temple were connected to the outer walls at only a very few junction points. That is how the temple, Zion, limited the effects of Babylon, or the world outside. There may be a lesson here for us. We can create the real Zion among us by limiting the extent to which Babylon will influence our lives. Wherever we are, whatever city we may live in, we can build our own Zion by the principles of the celestial kingdom and ever seek to become the pure in heart. We do not need to become as puppets in the hands of the culture of the place and time. We can be courageous and can walk in the Lord's paths and follow his footsteps, end quote. I love that analogy. That's For a, anyone who's ever been to Manhattan, it is loud, busy, oh, constantly. all the time. I mean, it's a stereotype, but the, the city never sleeps. Uh, I've been to the exactly. Manhattan Temple, and it is remarkable how you can feel so separate in that temple. Building Zion in the midst of Babylon. Yeah, Something to think about. So wrapping up here, verse 58. For the names of the righteous shall be written in the book of life, and unto them will I grant an inheritance at my right hand. And now, my brethren, what have ye to say against this? I say unto you, if ye speak against it, it matters not, for the word of God must be fulfilled. For what shepherd is there among you, having many sheep, doth not watch over them, that the wolves enter not and devour his flock? And behold, if a wolf enter his flock, doth he not drive him out? Yea, and at the last, if he can, he will destroy him. And now I say unto you that the good shepherd doth call after you, and if ye will hearken unto his voice, he will bring you into his fold, and ye are his sheep, and he commandeth you that ye suffer no ravenous wolf to enter among you, that ye may not be destroyed." I love that vision that the voice is constantly calling for us. He doesn't stop reaching out for us. He doesn't stop sending his servants for us. 
So if our job then is to hearken. Well, and you know, I love one of the lines too in verse 58. I say unto you, if you speak against it, it matters not. Uh, Well, you can Uh, doubt my words. You can speak against them. It doesn't matter. They're still true. Yeah. That's part of the beauty of that personal testimony. When you know that the Holy Ghost has spoken to you, it really doesn't matter what anyone else says, period. Yeah. Again, between you and God. Uh, At the very last verse, Alma, in speaking to the church in Zarahemla, tells the members of the church, I'm speaking to you by way of command. But for those of you who are not part of our church, who are getting this message, I speak by way of invitation. Come, be baptized under repentance, that ye also may be partakers of the fruit of the tree of life. Come join us. We are here following our master who is helping us to be the very best we can be. Great message. And it had a great impact on the church. It did indeed. As we go on to the next chapter, which is fairly short, chapter 6, we get, And now it came to pass that after Alma had made an end of speaking unto the people of the church, which was established in the city of Zarahemla, he ordained priests and elders by laying on his hands according to the order of God to preside and watch over the church. The quick aside here, it looks like Alma has finally somehow understood that he can't be everything to everyone. Hmm. And he is delegating. He is ordaining priests and elders so that they can watch over the church while he goes and preaches to another church. Yep, that's great. So good stuff. And it came to pass that whosoever did not belong to the church who repented of their sins were baptized unto repentance and were received into the church. And it also came to pass that whosoever did belong to the church that did not repent of their wickedness and humble themselves before God. I mean, those that were lifted up in the pride of their hearts, the same were rejected and their names were blotted out, that their names were not numbered among those of the righteous. And thus they began to establish the order of the church in the city of Zarahemla. Now I would that ye should understand that the word of God was liberal unto all, that none were deprived of the privilege of assembling themselves together to hear the word of God. Nevertheless, the children of God were commanded that they should gather themselves together oft and join in fasting and mighty prayer in behalf of the welfare of the souls of those who knew not God. Yeah. Wow. So people who weren't a member of the church but repented of their sins were baptized and joined into the church. Those who were members of the church but still lifted up in their pride and still rejecting Christ, their names were blotted out, and they were no longer numbered with the church. But the members of the church continued to pray for them, and the word of God was liberal to all, was preached to everyone. It was important that Mormon—this is Mormon talking at this point. Mormon wants us to know that this was the situation. They preached to everyone. Yeah, and for those they couldn't reach, they prayed and fasted for And how does that change how we think about our neighbor and our brother and our sister when we're praying and fasting for them? I don't think that it can be denied what an impact that would have on the way we felt about those people. Mm. So the church is in order. And now Alma travels east of the river Sidon to the valley and the city of Gideon. 
Yep, we've got it on the map here. And by the way, just a note on the map. This is the church's map that they use for the seminary students. And you can access it in the seminary teacher manual. And it's the last page of the appendix. It's something everybody can access. But if you guys are interested, let me know and I'll post a larger image in the description. And if you guys want to have a bigger one than is in the manual. But anyways, this will help us to kind of follow the events that are happening in Alma. And once again, this is a relative map. It's a map based on information that we have in the scriptures. It is not meant to tie to any known geographical location. Yep. And if you're interested in more of those kinds of things about the map, check out the video on the scriptural overview of the map. So now we're in the city of Gideon, and Alma is preaching to these people. It starts kind of in an interesting way. It begins with certain hopes and desires that he has, and then certain things that he trusts about the people. So like in verse three, behold, I have come having great hopes and much desire. And then he lists what he is hoping and desiring, that I should find that ye had humbled yourselves before God. That's what he's hoping for and desiring that ye had continued in the supplication of his grace, that I should find that you were blameless before him. Now, we don't know that he's been here before. It mentions earlier that he hasn't had a chance to, but he has been in this neck of the woods in chapter two when they were chasing Amlicai, Amlicai's army. They came into the valley of Gideon. So he's been in this neck of the woods, but this is a very different visit where he gets to talk to the church and the people uh, of the land about spiritual things. So then he goes on to say in verse five that he trusts that according to the spirit of God, I shall have joy over you. And then he goes on in verse six, I trust that ye are not in a state of so much unbelief as your brethren. And he's speaking of those in Zarahemla. Right. In verse 3, he spells that out fairly clearly. I should find that you were not in the awful dilemma that our brethren were in at Zarahemla. Yeah. So Gideon appears to be doing better than the church at Zarahemla. Yeah. So he's hoping for these things. He's trusting that he's going to find something different happening here. Uh, I trust that you're not lifted up in the pride of your hearts. I trust that you have not set your hearts upon riches. I trust you do not worship idols, but that ye do worship the true and living God. Now, later in the chapter, he's going to express how his hopes have been fulfilled. But right now, this is what he's hoping for as he begins to speak to the people in Gideon. Well, and I think we'll find that he has a different kind of message. Yeah. In chapter 5, there is a lot about introspective and a lot of warning And repentance. And repentance. And we get a little different flavor here. It's a great testimony to me that if we are prepared, the prophets can give us a different message or maybe a richer message. If we are continuing to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, then those messages for repentance and and I, I hate to call them the basics, but the milk before the meat messages will have to be there until we as a church are ready for more. And it seems as though the people in Gideon are ready for more. We've mentioned in previous lessons that my wife teaches violin. And she's talked to me before about 
students that will come in once a week and she'll teach them a lesson and that following week they won't practice at all, which means that the next lesson she's teaching the same lesson. <laughs> they can't progress. They can't move on. And yeah. it's the same thing here. You know, when you aren't checking yourself and, you know, working on repenting and not being lifted up in your pride, we can't move on to other things. Yep. So what are Alma's words to Gideon? Starting in verse 7, For behold, I say unto you, there be many things to come, and behold, there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. For behold, the time is not far distant that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. Behold, I do not say that he will come among us at the time of his dwelling in his mortal tabernacle. For behold, the Spirit hath not said unto me that this should be the case. Now as to the, this thing, I do not know. But this much I do know, that the Lord God hath power to do all things which are according to his word. But behold, the Spirit hath said this much unto me, saying, Cry unto this people, saying, Repent ye. And prepare the way of the Lord, and walk in his paths, which are straight. For behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Son of God cometh upon the face of the earth. And behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel, who shall be overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, and bring forth a son, yea, even the Son of God. I'd like to point out that when Alma refers to the time is not far distant, this is less than a century. So it is not far distant, certainly. Yes. Now, verse 10, I'm going to take a quick aside for verse 10, because there's a fair amount of controversy sometimes among those who are critics of the Book of Mormon. The phrase that, behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem. We know, of course, that Christ was born in Bethlehem. So what the heck? I'm so surprised that this ever comes up. I really am. Yeah, it's pretty easily explained. I mean, at the very least, one of the things that we like to do, of course, is to go to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. And there's a portion of that definition that says, quote, in general, at denotes nearness or presence, as at the ninth hour, at the house. But it is less definite than in or on. At the house may be in or near the house, end quote. Yeah, that's obvious. If you look at a map, do this. Take some time. Go to Google Maps or one of your favorite map sites or look at the map that we're showing you right now. Jerusalem? And Bethlehem, roughly five miles apart, five and a half miles. They're very close. I would use in my own geography the situation that, for example, if you live in Sandy, Utah, or Murray, Utah, or Draper, Utah, and if you were to ask that person, well, where do you live? They will most likely say, oh, I live in Salt Lake City. They should well, say they live at not Salt Lake City. In so they should. They should <laughs> live because it's nearby. It's it's it, you know, it's a, not quite a suburb maybe, but it is definitely nearby. Yeah. 
I might say so, that I live yes. at Madison. And if people are still puzzled, I'd say, well, I live at Wisconsin. And if they're still puzzled, I'd say, I live at the Midwest. Right. But, I live at the world. Yeah. Listen, you know, one other point, not to belabor this, but nobody knows where Bethlehem is. It's a nothing city. I mean, it's small even in its own land. It was, you know, known as well, a yeah, city and of David, these but, people, the audience here, are people who have been separated from the Middle years. East for 500 years. Yeah. So yeah. there's the one place they know is Jerusalem. So, of course, and we're going to say listen to the phrase right after that. Right. At Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers. Right. So, OK. Does that mean that all of their forefathers lived exactly in the city of Jerusalem? No, it's, uh, he's just referring to the old world land. If you want information on that, I'll put a link in the description from Book of Mormon Central, which walks through some documents from that time period that talk about the land of Jerusalem as opposed to the city. But even in the Book of Mormon, we've already seen it. People talk about the city, or they'll say the land of Nephi, or in other words, the city of Nephi. I mean, this is the way they talk. You've got the land, you've got the city. It may be all the same thing. They're not using Google Maps. So anyway, I think we've talked well, enough about that. We have, and certainly it's important to ask questions. It's important to wonder, and it's important to investigate but if you're going to stand on something like that as a criticism <laughs> there's uh, there's so much better ones you could go for there really are oh my goodness it doesn't bode well for anyone to respect yeah, that's all you've got that's remarkable all right verse 11 and he shall go forth this is referring to the lord again he's talking about the coming of the lord can i just point out before we start this even these are like three of the greatest verses on the atonement in all of scripture I'm just going to isolate them here. Just let's look at these verses, understand them in the context. But wow, if this is the kind of stuff you get when you're being righteous like the people of Gideon are being, that should motivate us. Well, and also remember, this hasn't happened yet. Yeah. We're still almost 100 years away from this happening. Verse 11. And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death, which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities." Now the Spirit knoweth all things. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. One of the things I find so remarkable about these verses, and I'm not saying that he's listing these in order of importance or I, you know, I don't know why he's listed in the way he has. I just find it profound that when we think of the atonement, we jump right into overcoming sin, which is, is supremely important, or overcoming death. But the first things he talks about are temptations, afflictions, pains, sicknesses. That's the first thing he mentions about the atonement. And then he talks about death. And then he talks about infirmities again. And then 
at the very end, he talks about taking upon him sins that he can blot out their transgressions. There's so much more to the atonement that applies to our everyday life and struggles and experience and all of that. I just, I find that really encouraging that maybe I need to broaden my view of how the atonement can work in my life. Well, I certainly agree with that. And that reminds me also of a quote that I pulled out of the Institute Manual. This is Elder Neil A. Maxwell from his book, We Will Prove Them Herewith, giving us a little more perspective on the atonement. Quote, he knows by actual personal experience, because not only did he suffer pains, afflictions, and temptations of every kind during his second estate, but he took upon himself our sins, as well as our pains, sicknesses, and infirmities. Thus he knew, not in abstraction, but in actuality, according to the flesh, the whole of human suffering. He bore our infirmities before we bore them. He knows perfectly well how to succor us. We can tell him nothing of pain, temptation, or affliction. He learned according to the flesh, and his triumph was complete. End quote. You know, that term to succor is one we don't use anymore, but the 1828 dictionary says that it's literally to run to, to run to support, to help or relieve when in difficulty, want or stress to assist and deliver from suffering. But I love the urgency. It's not mm. just that he wants to know how to help his people but how he can run to the aid of his people to alleviate suffering. And maybe that is going to be to take away the thing that causes suffering. And sometimes it's going to be to make us stronger to be able, whatever it is, he'll know the right thing for us. We can trust that. But I love the urgency. Yep. And it adds a great image of the mm. atonement. Yeah. Verse 14 now I say unto you that ye must repent and be born again. For the Spirit saith, If ye are not born again, ye cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore come and be baptized unto repentance, that ye may be washed from your sins, that ye may have faith on the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world, who is mighty to save and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Yea, I say unto you, Come, and fear not, and lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you, which doth bind you down to destruction. Yea, come and go forth and show unto your God that ye are willing to repent of your sins and enter into a covenant with him to keep his commandments and witness it unto him this day by going into the waters of baptism. And whosoever doeth this and keepeth the commandments of God from thenceforth the same will remember that I say unto him, yea, he will remember that I have said unto him, he shall have eternal life according to the testimony of the Holy Spirit which testifieth in me. There's a great short quote from Elder David A. Bednar that's in the Come Follow Me manual from April 2014 General Conference where he says, quote, the Son of God perfectly knows and understands, for he has felt and borne our individual burdens, and because of his infinite and eternal sacrifice, he has perfect 
empathy and can extend to us his arm of mercy, end quote. And so what's the response after this incredible testimony, prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ and what that will mean for them? In verse 19, he says, for I perceive. This is a term that Alma uses. And before I've always noticed it in the intimate sense of later on, he's going to be talking to one of his sons. And at the beginning of each chapter, he talks about how he perceives that his son has this question. And I loved that kind of, as a teacher, how he was locked into his student. And it's happening here too. I hadn't noticed it before we were talking as we were preparing this chapter. For I perceive, in verse 19, that ye are in the paths of righteousness. I perceive that ye are in the path which leads to the kingdom of God. Yea, I perceive that ye are making his paths straight. I perceive that it has been made known unto you by the testimony of his word that he cannot walk in crooked paths. I don't know if this helps, but that phrase uh, at the end of 19, I perceive that you're making his paths straight. I always found that kind of a puzzling phrase, but I think the next verse goes on to describe what he means by that. Neither doth he vary from that which he hath said. He doesn't turn right or left when it comes to righteousness. And he's perceiving that that's what they're doing. They're not turning right or left. They're keeping in the straight path. So that's a wonderful thing to have perceived about them. His hopes have been fulfilled in these people. Would that the Lord and our leaders could feel the same about us. Absolutely. In verse 23, And now I would that ye should be humble and be submissive and gentle, easy to be entreated, full of patience and long-suffering, being temperate in all things being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times, asking for whatsoever things ye stand in need, both spiritual and temporal, always returning thanks unto God for whatsoever things ye do receive. You know, it's interesting. The Gospel Doctrine Manual had a quote from President Ezra Taft Benson in referring to the need to be humble. Quote, The antidote for pride is humility, meekness, submissiveness. Let us choose to be humble. We can choose to humble ourselves by conquering enmity toward our brothers and sisters, esteeming them as ourselves, and lifting them as high or higher than we are. We can choose to humble ourselves by receiving counsel and chastisement. We can choose to humble ourselves by forgiving those who have offended us. We can choose to humble ourselves by rendering selfless service. We can choose to humble ourselves by going on missions and preaching the word that can humble others. We can choose to humble ourselves by getting to the temple more frequently. We can choose to humble ourselves by confessing and forsaking our sins and being born of God. We can choose to humble ourselves by loving God, submitting our will to his, and putting him first in our lives, end quote. And in addition to that, the word temperate, that's a great word. And it's a word that we don't really use anymore. And our society kind of reflects that, unfortunately. But there's a great quote that I pulled out of the Institute Manual in reference to temperate from then elder Russell M. Nelson. This is from General Conference, October 1991, 
Oh, and the previous quote from President Benson's General Conference, April 1989. But this is General Conference, October 1991. Then Elder Russell M. Nelson says, quote, Temperance suggests sobriety and self-restraint in action. It reminds one of covenants made. Repeatedly, scriptures teach that we be temperate in all things. Temperance can protect each of us from the aftermath of excess, end quote. I love that. I love temperance Wonderful. as being a protection. It's yeah. Great stuff. Yeah, and I, I love the connection of the word self-restraint. Yeah. And that's probably the easiest thing to think about when you want to define temperance. It's self-restraint. It's you're indulging in things, but not to excess. Well, and that's, I mean, that was the reason they called the outlawing of alcohol the temperance movement. Right. It's about self-restraint. Yep. And again, self-restraint is not very popular right now, and that's the reason we don't really see the word temperance that often anymore. Yeah. So let's wrap this up in chapter 7. Jay, you want to take verse 24? I'd love to. And see that ye have faith, hope, and charity, and then ye will always abound in good works. Isn't that interesting that we strive so hard sometimes for the good works? He's saying, no, strive for faith, hope, and charity, and the natural results. Good works will be a natural result. The and consequences the Lord... of your choices. Yeah. Yeah. What a great consequence to have. Absolutely. And may the Lord bless you and keep your garments spotless that ye may at last be brought to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the holy prophets who have been ever since the world began, having your garments spotless, even as their garments are spotless in the kingdom of heaven, to go no more out. And now, my beloved brethren, I have spoken these words unto you according to the Spirit, which testifieth in me. And my soul doth exceedingly rejoice because of the exceeding diligence and heed which ye have given unto my word. And now may the peace of God rest upon you. Now, he's going to give us a little list here of things that apply to them. Please insert your own list of what you would want the peace of God to rest upon in your life. And upon your houses and lands and upon your flocks and herds and all that you possess, your women and your children, according to your faith and good works from this time forth and forever. And thus I have spoken. Amen. Amen. Wow. So this has been a wonderful lesson to go over. We are going to go into more of Alma's prophesying in our next lesson. And I hope his next stop will be as successful as these last two. But <laughs> I well, it will in Melik. Well, I guess. They're good in Melik. It just goes downhill after that. <laughs> we'll look forward to that as we study together next time. I hope that you found some things in these chapters that are a testimony to you, that are good questions for you to examine about yourself or that bring peace to you through the atonement of Jesus Christ and all that that promises in our lives. So we will look forward to studying with you next time. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>